When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 70s. Today's mystery is, are the 71-72 Lakers the most impressive team ever? Hi, this is Jason, and my guest is Sean Fury. He is the author of Rise and Fire, The Origin, Science, and Evolution of the Jump Shot, and How It Transformed Basketball Forever. Returning to our program. Sean, welcome back. Awesome to be back, Jason. So you are a, a big Lakers fan. You are not old enough to uh, know the uh, the 69 through 73 Lakers in particular, but um, you had I, I know that your family followed uh, the team uh, closely from previous conversations, and uh, obviously as a, a man who knows his basketball history, obviously know the important um, parts of uh, this team. But, um, you know, what, what kind of, to you, what does sort of this era of the Lakers uh, represent? I think I mean, failure is really, I think, a lot of the first word that kind of pops to mind in that, I mean, you have this entire decade of just these devastating, heartbreaking, occasionally bizarre, snake-bitten losses that if they happened, you know, it's always tough. We talk about this. We've talked about this before, comparing errors, but you think if there was a team today that in a nine-year span lost seven finals, with two guys and Weston Baylor, who at that time, if you were making an all-time NBA team, almost certainly would have been in the starting five. And yet, year after year, they suffered these losses. So just these devastating defeats that they went through, but yet at the end managed to put together one of the best teams in NBA history. It's kind of a, a crazy way that it didn't end for them, of course, because the next year then, you know, they lost again in the finals, but... It was such an amazing way to cap kind of that decade of failure. The unfortunate part, of course, being that Elgin Baylor, the guy who suffered along with West more than anyone, wasn't there to enjoy the final victory. But I, I think just the when, when you think about that decade and then into the early 70s, it's really, I think, the, the defeats and the losses that probably stand out even more than that 72 season. Um, but I think the 33-game winning streak sort of, it does put them on a pedestal where that is something that's very memorable, uh, set them apart from every other team in NBA history, really, even if their 69 wins was broken. But, you know, just that decade of utter heartbreak finally ending in triumph at a time when their best players were past their prime, another kind of remarkable aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so overall, the team had uh, four finals appearances in five years, winning the 1972 NBA championship. Uh, that year, they had a 69-13 record, which, which, which set the record for wins at the time, including the 33-game winning streak, which we'll get into um, a bit later. Um, and they also had the, uh, the the basketball references SRS, which uh, weighs in uh, strength of schedule and uh, victory margin. Has them as the third best uh, regular season team ever. Uh, they of course uh, were able to team three of the greatest players ever in history. Um, 
Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, and Will Chamberlain all on one team. Uh, really the first super team, in a sense, with uh, Wilt uh, using his leverage to force a trade that would uh, later echo a trend of uh, in the 70s of players gaining more power and using it to uh, switch teams or switch leagues and, and so forth. Um, the uh, the 1972 team is the best uh, single-season team of that decade. And really, you know, the this these Lakers, uh, compared to every other uh, you know, pretty successful team in the uh, in the seventies are one of the best remembered teams of that time period, other than perhaps the Knicks and probably you know, yeah. um, obviously the rivalry between them and the Knicks uh, winning two of those three finals is is part of that. Uh, and the '72 team really became the great team that all future great teams were compared to, at least single season teams, until the 1996 Bulls. Uh, so yeah, we're kind of. My my thought here is that in, that perhaps the seventy one and seventy two Lakers are I, I wouldn't call them necessarily the best team ever although they have the, they certainly have that argument but I would say that there's a good chance that they're the most impressive team ever just based on where they initially came from where their stars were in that stage of their career um, Elgin Baylor retiring nine games in the season having a, a similar team but having a new coach bring in a completely new approach to the team and getting those guys to buy in and the fact that they um, had this remarkable streak in this remarkably difficult schedule um, the fact that they were able to then go into the playoffs and beat another one of the best regular season teams of all time and then finally finish off a you know one of their fierce rivals in the finals so we'll, we'll kind of get into some of the specifics there but that's sort of where um, th- that would be my argument for why they might be the most um, impressive team are we don't need to conclude that argument right now but do you think that there's a a chance perhaps do you think i'm i am uh somewhere i'm not off base when i you know perhaps make that claim as a possibility no i i think you're definitely um on track and i think part of it is because of those failures we talked about i mean if again trying to put it in modern terms if you think of say if say if kobe and Shaq had gone from 2002 to 2010 and lost seven finals and never won one and then a few years later win 69 games, win 33 in a row, um, you know, kind of just overcoming all those skeletons and then putting together the season that the Lakers until that year had never won even 60 games in a season. Uh, and obviously the schedule was shorter um, for part of that, but they had, you know, 55, I, I think was the most before that. Um, and they'd won 48 the year before. So the the leap they took and the way they did it you know, finally putting together these parts that individually were always awesome, but now finally came together as this ultimate team, combining it with, you know, the winning streak really does set them apart in a way, because I was thinking about this today with Golden State this year, obviously winning 24 in a row, remarkable accomplishment, but they still would have had to win 10 in a row to beat that streak, and a 10-game winning streak is an amazing accomplishment in itself, so... I definitely think they 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 have to be in the conversation for for the most impressive single season. Like you said, that doesn't necessarily mean the best team ever. Not that we can solve that question anyway. But as far as just single season accomplishments, they they have to be near the top, if not at the very top. Yes, and the 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 greatest mysteries is about it's about investigating the mysteries, not necessarily about solving the mystery. We're not we're not promising any solving here, so we want to make that clear to the listeners that we you know we are. <laughs> You know, we're detectives, but not every detective, um, you know, solves the case at the end. So just uh, fair it'll warning. End on a cliffhanger. I'm sorry. It'll end on a cliffhanger. Exactly. Yes. So 
Uh, so the key players, of course, of the uh, the dynasty, they, they are well known. Uh, Jerry West, one of the uh, the great guards of all time, the logo of the league already at this point was considered one of the uh, greatest uh, clutch players ever, even though he had f- failed in um, in five previous times in the finals heading into the 69 season. They would lose again in 1970, of course. Um, and then uh, he had one of his best seasons in 1970. Actually, with, you know, there's a has a decent argument for winning the MVP, which went to Willis Reed that year. Led the NBA with 31.2 points per game. Will missed most of that season, and Baylor missed 28 games. Uh, then in 72, when he was asked to be more of a playmaker under Bill Sharman, actually led the league in assists. So even though he was at age 30 in 1969, so he was in his 30s as this run was progressing, uh, still was probably the best guard in the league up until his retirement or, or very close to um very close to that level i can't think of anyone off the top of my head because he kind of eclipsed oscar a little bit as oscar aged um and there and not necessarily anyone who stood out is certainly you know maybe on his level but no one who was you know who was better than him other than you know perhaps his his um gal goodrich who we'll talk about in a little bit his uh, yeah. backcourt mate would be the only guy who was kind of even in that uh, even that in that tier that i can think of yeah and West is kind of has become kind of the symbol of of the tormented years that they suffered because he was so open with how the losing affected him. But like I said, he maintained his incredible play and he finally retired when he, you know, he would tell reporters because he always gave there's a, a plethora of great quotes from West, whether years after he played or even during his playing days. And he was very honest and talked about when he felt his level of play had diminished. You know, even a little bit, uh, mostly due to injuries and age, of course, that he knew it was was time to be done. But he, even in his last years, he he was the Lakers still count on him to be the man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then Will Chamberlain, who um, was uh, 32 when he joined the team in 1969, uh, and even though his scoring was down at this point in his career, he was still averaging during his time with the Lakers. He averaged 17.7 points per game, 19.2 rebounds per game, 4.3 assists, and uh, and 0.206 win shares for 48. So still elite level production um, during that time, and you know leading leading your team to the finals. Um, you, you know four times in five years is a uh, you know, I think that shows that he was playing in the elite level as well. It wasn't just uh, putting up those numbers, even though, you know, they didn't have as much success as they would have liked in the finals. Still, uh, getting there four times in five years is uh, pretty impressive. Um, Chamberlain, uh, he um, suffered a uh, his first really serious injury of his career. It was a knee injury, nine games in the 1970 season that was feared career-threatening. He actually, uh, and this, was, uh, this would have been after the 69 um, finals where he famously uh, injured his knee and asked to be taken out of the game. And then his coach, uh, Butch Van Prelikoff, wouldn't uh, let him back into the uh, into the game. We, we talked about that with uh, in our uh, WrestleMania series with uh, Wilt and um, the, the, the Wilt and uh, Russell episode. And um, he was able to rehab by it talks about in his um, talked about in the biography of uh, uh, Wilt larger than life. Uh, basically, rehab by copying racehorse techniques. He ran in ocean water. He jumped in soft sand. He uh, did hill climbing on a bicycle, and he was able to uh, have a um, was able to return from this injury uh, for the playoffs and uh, and and led the team to the finals in 1970. They and they you know they took the uh, 
the Knicks to a seven games. It, it's kind of funny in that finals. Um, Wilt or you know um, Willis Reed is lauded for you know gutting it out and going out there um, to, you know with his uh, with his his knee injury and the emotional moment in Madison Square Garden. But uh, Wilt, of course, had dealt with overcoming a tremendous injury as well, and um, and Jerry West in the same game actually had injections in his um, hand to help him play yeah. in the game, which are um, you know not. Not, not to take away from Reed's moment, but you know those are other things that are, aren't as well known that are also you know pretty remarkable. Uh, you know, uh, return from injuries or you know uh, battling through to uh, you know performing that game, even though they didn't win. And I think that's one thing I think it's easy to forget when you talk about players back then and dealing with these injuries without having access, obviously, to modern medical marvels that help players. And not only play in individual games, but just prolong their careers and whether it's minutes played. I mean, you look at the minutes played for those Lakers teams and how old. I mean, like you said, Wilt, mid-30s, Elgin, a couple years older, West, 33 in that 72 season. But they're still playing 40 minutes per game, you know, unfathomable in today's game. And the injuries, you know, you read these stories. I was just looking at a Sports Illustrated one today, and you mentioned West's hands. And he's getting injections before games. You know, they're basically just shooting these guys up, and that's something that's really remarkable to think about. Those that era is, you know, these guys' careers. It, it just, I think you you guys have tweeted about this, and we've talked about this. When you think about guys playing into their thirties back then and playing really well, it just wasn't done that much. And so that's another remarkable sort of aspect about those that seventy two team, especially is that in Wilton West, who were still around, you had these guys who weren't at a prime age for for being dominant but they still were that season yeah and um and then uh of course um so at this point when when Wilt crossed a 30,000 points for his career in 1972 the Lakers had three of the four highest scorers in uh, NBA history (laughs) on their uh, team uh, had the most points uh Oscar was second with uh with uh, 24,692 points uh Baylor had uh 23,000 points and West had just under 23,000 points yeah. so um so it, yeah I mean it just kind of gives you a sense of like wow you know the where, where this team was where those guys were in the realms of NBA history as you talked about you know um I, I honestly all three guys would almost certainly be um you know an all-time all-nba team of course you'd have to deal with russell and chamberlain and who you picked there or you know yeah. fudging that but but still still obviously you know they they were three of uh the you know five or six best players in nba history up to that point um so baylor um he was 34 in 1969 as this team kind of starts is put together with chamberlain being added um i i guess i forgot to mention that chamberlain was um uh, he, he had, um, he of course was the reigning MVP when he came over in 68 and had led the Sixers to the 67 title despite many past failures versus Bill Russell Celtics as we talked about the 69 um, team failing. Uh, and then, um, uh, so at this point, uh, you know, Baylor was kind of the guy who really first, you know, he was the first superstar in Los Angeles uh, before um, before West emerged and one of the legendary small forwards of all time, you know, just, uh, innovative offensive player with dynamic moves and above the rim game. Um, 
And toward the end of his career, knee injuries robbed him of a lot, although he was still reasonably productive uh, in his last few seasons. 23.4 points per game, 10.2 rebounds per game, 5.1 assists per game, and a .145 win share per 48, which is still you know very above average. Um, so to, you know, to be at the end of his career and still putting up those, those numbers is, uh, is pretty strong. Um, so as far as Baylor goes, um, just just kind of in general, you know, he's the guy. He he was the guy who kind of really, um, you know, made basketball in Los Angeles um, he really kind of lifted it to another level in prominence. I talked to uh, Bajan Bain in a previous episode in talking about, and he, he wrote a book about Elgin Baylor. Um, for you as a as a Lakers fan and as a basketball historian, you know, what kind of comes to, to mind for you as far as Baylor goes? I think everything you just said as far as how innovative he was, you know, playing a style that really hadn't, you know, certainly there were probably a couple other guys that were doing similar things but not putting up the numbers or the dominance that he displayed while also playing with that flair. And, you know, for me, first thing, when I hear Elgin Baylor, it's and I've told the story previously on here, but he was my dad's favorite player when because he actually, unlike Wes, played with the Minneapolis Lakers uh, before they moved and, I, you know, being from Minnesota, my family loved the Lakers, and Elgin was my dad's number one guy. So that's always what I've associated Elgin Baylor with. And then just the, I, I still love reading, you know, looking at the old box scores of those West pre-Chamberlain, the West Baylor years, the scoring numbers that those two would put up, and just kind of this fight they had year after year trying to topple the Celtics, and never been able to do it. And for me, Elgin's really. You know, just he's, these remarkable numbers, and a lot of them were in the book you mentioned. And before Wilt, he was the one who set the single-game NBA scoring record that had been set a decade earlier by Joel Folks. And it took Elgin's kind of, you know, evolutionary style to finally break that record before Wilt, of course, came along and put all the records to shame. But, you know, just this innovative guy who unfortunately retires kind of this ultimate you know, not tragedy is a big word, but as far as a player's career, just this tragedy of retiring in the year when, you know, the team goes on to its greatest glory. So yeah. he's just one of those kind of mythical guys, I think, in that early NBA history that was so important to the league, so important to the game. Like you said, so important to basketball in L.A. itself. Um, just unfortunate that he wasn't able to finally enjoy it that final season. Yeah, and it was 0-8 and, and ended up being 0-8 in the uh, finals in his career, which, you know, getting to eight finals is obviously really impressive, and, you know, you're battling against uh, the Bill Russell dynasty for the most part uh, during that time. So we interrupt this great podcast that you're listening to. My name is Kevin Rayfuse. I'm Tim Tompkins. And I'm Justin Kuzart. And we host the Drive and Dish NBA podcast. We cover every team in the league and a bunch of really fun segments like random NBA player, drive and Dougal, and hot takes from Reddit. So when you're done listening to this podcast, give us a search on iTunes or whatever podcast streaming app you're listening on. We're also at driveanddishpodcast.com. We are the Drive and Dish NBA podcast.
the other you know kind of main guy for uh for the team particularly in 72 um who is less known although still pretty well known gail goodrich uh who was a a six foot one 170 pound guard uh in in when he joined the team in 71 he was age 27 so a bit younger than the rest of the guys um he was a left-hander with the nickname of stumpy uh was considered undersized and a bit of a gunner early on although he showed playmaking ability and and improved his defense in the uh, 72 season um he actually spent three years with the lakers in the uh in the late 60s and then he went to he was left unprotected and went to phoenix in 1969 where he kind of um started to thrive as a scorer and really you know showed himself as a uh, as a uh, a star player or you know a, a strong player then returned to the lakers in 71 and then in the um the next season the 72 season he uh Came into his own, led the team in scoring, and ranked fifth in the NBA with 25.9 points per game. He also ranked third in the league in free throw percentage and made a second All-Star game um, appearance. Overall, he had, was a five-time All-Star and, and spent one season on the All-NBA first team later in 74. So uh, you stayed a star for a, another couple of years until the, uh, the later 70s and then and then fell off because of injuries once he was traded to the Jazz. Um, so, so what about, uh, as far as Goodrich goes, what uh, stands out about him for you? I think it, the thing with him is I'm one of the I don't remember when I would have read it I was would have been a kid but you know reading about the 72 Lakers and it's kind of one of those stats when you first see it if you don't know the history it's just really startling when I first realized that he actually led the 72 Lakers in scoring um, I just remember being shocked by that as a kid and he of course only led you know looking up now he only led by point one points per game over West. But still, he had what you know, Weston Chamberlain, two of the highest scores in NBA history. But Gail Goodrich uh, leads the team in scoring. I remember when I first started reading about that team, you know, first being like, "Well, who's that guy?" And, and then how how did he lead the team? And then when you read more and realize how the style of the team changed, what Bill Sharman, the coach, brought in, and you know, just see how he was able to use Goodrich and how he kind of changed. Uh, there are stories about how you know Sharma kind of talked to West about changing his style of play, becoming more of a distributor. Like I said, he led the league in assists that year, and then Goodrich moving off the ball more, but being able to move move without it, get the ball in great scoring position. And it's you know I didn't I don't know if I realized how tiny he was. Like you said, six foot one, which yeah, um, yeah, he was. In any era is a pretty small guard so sure yeah, pretty impressive what he did yeah and and small guards were definitely not in vogue in the nba uh i guess by uh, by the early 70s you know in the aba some of the small guards were thriving so that, that was kind of changing a little bit but although he was actually only a, an inch or two shorter than um west at least what, what yeah. West was with but but less but west was so like he was longer and lighter where goodrich you know he was actually kind of like i mean he kind of had short arms and was a little bit you know stumpy was a uh, that that was his nickname. Elvin Baylor gave him, um, and uh, but that was kind of an appropriate nickname, to be honest. Um, uh, you know, even though he, he was a great player, and, and and but he definitely was a little bit uh, more compact, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's funny you mentioned, you know, Stumpy. You know, not the most flattering nickname. You know, he term him Deerman, I guess. But reading a story today, and another player we'll we'll talk about, but Jim McMillan, a player on that '72 team, and one of his nicknames was. Floyd Butterball, another nickname given to him by Elgin Baylor, who apparently was, you know, I guess that was his role with that Lakers team at that stage was the giver of 
not very flattering nicknames. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of McMillan, he was he really emerged in the uh, seventy two season, and 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 once he replaced um, Baylor, which basically he just said uh, he he called it was just a routine assignment replacing God um, as he uh, as he filled in there. Um, he was he was twenty three in the uh, seventy two season was his second year. Um, and uh, he played a lot more. He, he initially he was overweight, and then he, he lost some of that weight. He looks pretty live in the, you know, yeah. the video that I've seen in um, uh, you know, from from those years. Uh, averaged fifteen point three points per game and five point four rebounds per game uh, with the uh, Lakers during that time. Um, he actually he recently passed away, unfortunately. Uh, but he ha- had a pretty good career in the seventies. Uh, uh, he spent a couple years to the Lakers and was traded to the Braves and and had some good uh, years there. I, I believe it was the same time that um, uh, it was when they were pretty good with Bob McAdoo and um, and you know were a strong playoff team and yeah. uh, and then lasted kind of later into the seventies with Dr. Jack Ramsey as their coach. Um. Uh, anything uh, in particular about McMillan that stands out to you? Well, I think the big thing, and you mentioned this, so maybe talk about it a little bit, but that year when they beat the Bucks in the playoffs in 1972, and that series was really, I guess the comparison would be if the Spurs and Warriors had actually played this year. It was kind of these two powerhouses. The Bucks had won 63 games, I believe, that year were the defending champions, obviously Kareem at his peak, uh, even if Oscar wasn't. But in game one, the Bucks in L.A. run the Lakers off the court, uh, 93 to 72, which was nearly 50 points below the Lakers scoring average for that year. They averaged 121. But then in game two, the Lakers win 135 to 134, probably saving the season. Um, if they would have gone down 2 nothing, losing two games at home, it would have been hard to see them beating Milwaukee. But in that game, too, McMillan is the one. He scores 42 points and really sort of saves the Lakers' season. And that was a story that I wasn't too familiar with. And so I, I was researching for you know our podcast here a little bit more and just how important you know that game was and how epic that series really was overall. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll kind of, yeah, we'll get into a little bit more of the details of that uh, series. But he definitely, uh, you know, stood out there even, uh, you know, uh, being the leading scorer of, of a game uh, during that series. Um, and, you know, um, uh, you know d- helping put the team on, not that he was the primary guy you know, or anything, but definitely was stepping up and putting the team on his back when he needed to, which considering the other names that were there uh, is, is very impressive. Um, yeah. Uh, Happy Hairston, a power forward who... Um, uh, was a, a stout rebounder, even alongside what I believe he was the first player to crack a thousand rebounds in a season next to Wilt. Um, 17 uh, points per game, 11.9 rebounds per game during his time with the Lakers. He spent their five and a half seasons after joining in 1970. Uh, it was also he was uh, also considered a good finisher on the uh, on the fast break. Um, uh, anything about uh, him in particular? I think you know the rebounding stands out, like you mentioned. Um, finally. A, a- power forward playing next to Wilt who you know certainly didn't match Wilt's numbers but more than held his own and just played a big role in sparking that Lakers team is famous for Charmin instituting this you know devastating fast break and sort of the you know fast break is going to start with getting stops and then getting the rebound so he, he played such a key role with that and really kind of filled out that starting lineup you know you think about Obviously, today, positionless players are kind of all their age, but certainly back then, 
you, know, you have kind of the five set positions of that team just really had. You have the center, you have the great guards, McMillan at small forward, and then Harrison at the four spot. You know, just kind of perfectly fit into his role on that team. Yeah, and um, and, and then uh, other key guys, of course, uh, were uh, Pat Riley and uh, and Flynn Robinson, who kind of were uh, sort of battled for the backup uh, uh, shooting guard position throughout most of the year. The um, the Lakers were a team that w- very heavily uses top six or so guys and didn't dig into its bench uh, too much. Um, of course, Riley much more famous later for his uh, coaching and um, executive career. Um, at the time, he was 25 when he joined the team uh, in 71 after three years with the uh, San Diego uh, Rockets. Uh, Flynn Robinson had come over from the uh, Bucks and was uh, he was called Mr. Instant Point by uh, Chick Hearn. And um, is sort of a, uh, you know, a, a score off the uh, bench uh, type uh, player. Um, so uh, either of those guys, as far as their uh, as, as far as their playing careers go. Well, yeah, you mentioned Riley, of course, and one thing I enjoyed um, was, uh, you know, I think it was a quote after his playing days, but he was talking about that team, and the one thing he mentioned, he was famous in the 80s, of course, as a coach for hating the Celtics, and he played into the mythology of the 60s Celtics beating the Lakers, and as a player on that team, being coached by the former Celtic great Bill Sharman, and then his assistant, Casey Jones, who was also a great Celtics player, and Riley had a, a quote about how, you know, we were they were a little leery because Bill Sharman was covered in Boston green. And so you just picture Riley kind of having the same personality that we associate with him today, even as a GM. He's still, I think, kind of, he's, you know, he's kind of much slicker today, but still that very, you know, down-in-the-dirt, gritty guy. And that that's what he was as a player. And, you know, that's sort of what he brought to the team. And not that he, you know, like I said, he wasn't, you know, a huge contributor to that team, but they were very top heavy, but he was one of those guys who, like we talked about the 72 team, instead of having all these great individuals that always came up short, finally were this ultimate team. And any team like that, you need role players like Riley and what he did that season. Yeah, for sure. Um, So looking at the, uh, the, overall season the 1972 season and, and the winning streak which was obviously the team's signature accomplishment um bill Sharman was brought in as you mentioned the new coach in 72 uh the lakers uh, their top stars were all considered uh you know past their prime over the hill all, all three had dealt with the serious injuries in fact um the previous coach uh, joe malali he had uh previous called them over the hill after his firing so um great way to go out uh, there um so what what charman of course yeah as, as you mentioned he was a celtic great he had been a um outstanding shooting guard uh during the 50s and early 60s for the uh the, the beginning um celtics dynasty the first five or so years i think five or six years of the um bill russell led dynasty um he was known for being very detail-oriented, uh, very much into uh, preparation, uh, kind of a considered an eccentric at the time for his like fitness regimen and for doing calisthenics and things that we take for granted today. He was a, a pioneer in doing so, but did a lot of drills, uh, scouting reports, uh, film sessions. Um, all these things were things that he brought to the Lakers that um, either were completely new or were rare in the NBA during the time. Um and 
Uh, and he'd already had quite a bit of coaching success. He was uh, he had coached uh, Cleveland uh, in the uh, in, in the ABL in, in '62, which uh, won the championship in that league's only season. And then the previous season in uh, Utah for the Stars, he'd led them to a championship as well. And he'd also led the Warriors to the uh, finals in a '67 against Wilt Seventy Sixers. So he'd had already had a lot of success as a, a coach. Um, and, and of course, had uh, respect as a player. And as you mentioned, he had the. Th- there was at least some anxiety between uh, f- with Weston Riley over bringing the uh, you know the the longtime Celtic over, but but that dissipated quickly as they got to know him. And, and he was pr- pretty much beloved by almost every um, every player that he ever played. I mean, a lot of guy, guys in Utah, um, Zemo Beatty, for example. Um, you just you know s- sung his praises. Um, you know, all the time, and, and everyone on the Lakers, I, you know, I, I've never heard any kind of negative thing. The, the only guy who didn't really get along with him, even even though he liked him as a person, was Rick Barry. So, which you know, I guess <laughs> if anyone's not going to like him, I guess Rick Barry would probably be the guy. So, yeah. Um, but as as you kind of alluded to before, he really changed their identity from an isolation team to a fast breaking team. Which you know, given the age of the team, the fact that most of their top stars were order. Seems sort of counterintuitive, but uh, you know, as Goodrich said, he he convinced Wilt that if he played p- fast, he didn't have to come past half court so he could extend his career. So, which yeah, is interesting. I mean, you you would see that a lot. I you know, in some of the highlights, you know, he would lead the fast break and just kind of be there, and then the scoring would happen, and then you know, it would happen so quickly that he would just basically stay on that end of the court. I know that was kind of a specialty of Kareem's uh, later on in uh, his career as well, but. Um, and it, which kind of makes sense because you know obviously Kareem um, played in that fast-breaking Showtime style, even though he was not a uh, you know he was not a fast player by at uh, that point. Uh, and also he shifted West to become more of a ball handler and a playmaker. Um, and then um, and then Goodrich West kind of filled a little bit more of the Bob Cousy role in in that way. And then um, Goodrich was more of the traditional Charmin role where he would, you know, kind of come off screens and uh, and then West would kind of be more of the decision maker out there, which, you know, I, I think West could have filled Goodrich's role and, and done fine. But I don't think Goodrich could have filled West's role because I don't I mean, not that Goodrich wasn't a smart player, but he just yeah. West obviously was, you know, a, a, a genius level player. Yeah. And that's, you know, when you're just talking about. Wilt not passing half court, and I was just looking at a Sports Illustrated story from December of 71. They were in the midst of their winning streak, but still had about 18 games to go into it, and it talked, it has a quote from Wilt. Um, the outlet pass was something I had to be very conscious of earlier this season. It was a change of style for us then, but it has become second nature now. And it says once Chamberlain releases the ball, he almost never touches it again. When the Lakers fast break succeeds, he usually remains standing in the defensive area of the court. And this story talks about how Sharman did go about convincing Wilt, who was the main guy he had to convince, because every previous coach of Wilt had tried doing different things with him, and you know Wilt kind of decided when he would listen and when he wouldn't. But he certainly took to Sharman. But just as important was you know convincing Goodrich and West to alter how they played, and yeah, you know, that's really you know, talk about a coaching accomplishments. That, that's pretty remarkable to do with not just great players, but great players who've been established for 10, 11 years and getting them to buy into, yeah, obviously it had success as a player, but and he had success as a coach, you know, winning in the ABA, but 
he wasn't coming in with six rings or anything like you know Phil Jackson joining the Lakers and being able to implement the triangle. So I, I think it's a you know kind of great credit to Sharman that he was able to get not just Wilt but Wes and Goodrich and all the players to really fit into their roles. Yeah, I wonder if there's something to the idea of that forcing them to sort of change their style gave them some kind of challenge that sort of sparked them to excel. Because, you know, if, if you're doing the same thing over and over again, you're comfortable in that and you can be successful in that. But, uh, you know, sometimes you can, you know, go through the motions a little bit or it isn't quite as as challenging for you. And maybe you're not quite doing, you know, maybe you're doing 90% of your best or, you know, something about the fact that, you know, the fact that all of these players were playing in a slightly different way than they were used to and the fact that they were obviously buyed into that change, you know, sparked them to drove them to enjoy what they were doing even more in, in doing what they were better because it was, you know, the kind of the, a the first time they had been challenged on on that level in a long time. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I was trying to think of other, you know, coaching comparisons to what Sharma was able to do and, and one name obvious name that kind of pops in my head is Steve Kerr. Obviously, the Warriors had nowhere near the past that the Lakers had had, but he you know, was able to go into a, a team that was pretty good. And I remember when Mark Jackson was originally let go and there was some idea that maybe the players were grumbling a little bit. But just this new system that he brought in, this freedom that he gave them, and totally changed how they played, but like you said, kind of freed up the players. And I, you know, I think that's... Maybe a little bit of a comparison to what Sharma was able to do there. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Um, obviously, you know, a, a big difference is that the Warriors are a young team and that the uh, yeah. Lakers are an old team. But but yes, I, obviously, I, I think that is a good, that is a very similar, you know, one season improvement with a fairly similar team um, that, you know, is mostly explained by bringing in a new coach. And, and the biggest, um, the, the, the biggest thing with, um, that that Charman had to do as far as convincing goes was his idea of shoot arounds, morning shoot arounds, which yeah. uh, was not something that was had really been done in the NBA uh, previously. But uh, and, and you know, getting Will to actually buy in um, to do that, and uh, you know, you know, from all accounts, Will was good about um, about getting up in the morning and um, and, and at least you know the, the shoot arounds were not necessarily intended to be strenuous, obviously. Um, with an old team, you probably don't want to overpractice, but just sort of the idea of, um, you know, uh, uh, from what I kind of gathered, the the real intent for the shoot round is that is to encourage guys to go to bed early so that they're not um, so they're not you know sleeping super late and you know to kind of get them on a you know decent sort of schedule like that, um, which does make sense rather than you know the actual shoot round itself is you know kind of a means to an end in, in that sense. Yeah, I think, you know, the kind of an apocryphal story about Wilt and the shoot-around was a player going to his room and saying Sharman wants you there for the shoot-around and Wilt saying, I'll I'll come to the arena once, you know, ask Sharman if he wants to be for the shoot-around or for the game. Um, but you're reading stories, I was reading that same Sports Illustrated story, and it, it talked about how Wilt um, was, you know, fine with the shoot-arounds and was showing up to them. Yeah. And, he was and skeptical, wasn't, but, but he, he yeah. brought in and, and, and basically, you know, went with them, so... Yeah, and that same story you mentioned, Rick Barry, and it said he was kind of the one player in Sharman's past who didn't like it because he figured if he had played 40 minutes the night before that he should be resting during the day. Yeah. So he got some resistance from there. But I think it's certainly, you know, you talk about innovative coaching techniques, and that has to be near the top because eventually every coach at pretty much every level uh, started doing it. 
Yeah, which I, and honestly, I think um, some teams, I think including even the Warriors, have gone away from shootarounds now because they they feel like the getting the sleep is more important. Um, it, obviously, there's a balance in approaches. I mean, obviously, it worked very well for Charmin, um, but it's sort of interesting how the the thinking changes over at different times, and you know, just um, what. Uh, you know what we think we know uh, ends up changing as we as we learn new things. But um, the uh, the team started off seven and three, but it came after a four and a start. Sharman uh, threatened fines for everyone if they like if the Lakers kept playing without effort, and he even said, "Me too." He told, told the LA Times, "If I can't get the message across, I'm feeling too." The year before, he had supposedly fined himself a hundred dollars while coaching the uh, Utah Stars. So I, uh, I I like that story from Sharman uh, and. Um, uh, the biggest thing was dealing with Elgin Baylor, who um, just wasn't really suited for playing up and down the floor and, and playing the ne- the number of minutes that you know that a starter would require. So, uh, Sharman asked him to if he would be willing to come off the bench, and Elgin's you know he he said no, you know that, that's not something I want to do, and and retired nine games in the season. Uh, West referred to it as almost like a death in the family and uh, obviously a big moment in um, in Lakers history and a surprise. It's hard to know whether, you know, it's like you kind of say, well, if he'd been willing to hang on and um, and do that, the Lakers would have been successful and he would have gotten his ring. But it's hard to know whether it would have worked out the same even if Elgin had been there because I do think Elgin just changed the um, – the composition of the team so much, even if he had been playing that much, I still feel like that would have, that could have made a big difference. Not that I think it would have been a problem necessarily, but that just, it just would have, you know, it would have been a shadow kind of hanging over the team and it's hard to know how that would have affected things. Yeah. And the story I was reading talked about how his, you know, his style was much more, of course, isolation. And that's what made him a great player. And that's how he put up those big numbers. But at that stage of his career, because of age and even more so the injuries, he wasn't as effective with that style even though that's still how he played in it. It just was it was no longer a match for how those Lakers were hoping to play at their peak and what which they eventually did after he retired. So yeah, I think it definitely would have changed you know, the season. Certainly they still would have been very good and maybe he would have, you know, kind of fit in perfectly, but I think it's almost like expecting you know, this season as I watch anytime Kobe would have a good game, I'd kind of try to imagine well, he could be—he would be a great six-man on a contender, but that's supposing that Kobe Bryant would be okay with playing 15 minutes per game and just bringing this instant offense, which he wouldn't be, and that kind of defeats the whole purpose. And I think kind of a similar thing with Elgin there, where you know he's just such a dominant player, a dominant personality, and, and dominant figure for so long in LA that it would have been very difficult, I think, for the team to kind of manage seeing this legend who is now literally on his last leg. Um, so very, very unfortunate for him just from, you know, the way his career ended and not being able to be there for the title, but probably, you know, frankly fortunate for the team in that it enabled them to finally play with this new style. Mm-hmm. Um, so McMillan, as we mentioned, moved in the starting lineup um, in, in front of Baylor and then Sharman uh, actually named uh, Will Chamberlain captain in Baylor's p- place. Uh, West was offered a co-captaincy, but he declined to, to uh, do that. So Will was the uh, captain of the team. The first time, I believe, that he had been um, uh, named captain of a team. I'd have to check that for sure. But, but either way, it, he was. It was. It was a something that was meaningful to him, and you know, he he demonstrated. Um, 
you know, some strong leadership in, uh, you know, during that season, which he was something that he was supposedly not um, known for. But but he was, you know, he, it was something that by all accounts he took very seriously and, you know, maybe another element of getting him to buy into what Charmin was uh, doing and, you know, and, uh, and increasing the team cohesion. Yeah, and in a way it kind of, which probably if if Wilt could hear us today, um, but in a way he kind of became sort of a more Russell-esque type player in, in that season right. with concentrating on the rebounding and defense and the leadership. Um, so I don't know if Wilt would take kindly to people, you know, pegging him with that role. Yeah. Um, but although, he, he really, yeah. it's kind of accurate, I think. Yeah, although, I mean, at that time, that probably was the best role for him. Yeah, I don't necessarily yeah. think that would have been the best thing for him to do, you know, in, in, in 65 or anything like yeah, that. Exactly. I mean, you know, maybe there are things he could have taken from um, Russell that would have been helpful. But, um, you know, but he did, I mean, you know, we talked about it in previously in, in the uh, – in other episodes where, um, you know, they, they have some different skills. So, you know, trying to expect them to do the exact same thing is um, is not fair to either man. And obviously, you know, Wilt, um, you know, you look at uh, you look at their numbers and you, you know, Wilt did a lot of some things a lot better than a Russell did, even though obviously Russell had the team success. Um, but yeah, this time, yeah, I mean, it made sense for, you know, if they were running a similar system to what the Celtics did and, um, and Wilt was able to, um, you know, uh, use his decision-making and use his, you know, the defense and rebounding and, uh, and, you know, the outlets passing in a way that obviously Russell did as well. Um, so the 33-game winning streak itself, uh, it began uh, November 5th, 1971, and it's 65 days later on January 9th, 1972. The average margin of victory was 16 points, and there were four sets of back-to-back-to-backs during the streak. So so three games and three nights, uh uh, games, which is you know, pr- pretty incredible to uh, think about uh, during that time. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, obviously it was 65, 33 games in 65 days. So that is more than one game for every two days. So um, the closest games in the streak were the first game, actually, they won 110 to 106 over the Bullets. Game 18, they won 125 to 120 over the uh, Rockets. Uh, game 20, which uh, which which tied the uh, record for uh, most uh, wins in a season, Milwaukee had actually set it the year before, um, was against Phoenix. Uh, it was their third game in three nights, and the game went into overtime. But uh, Goodrich um, was able to uh, g- catch fire in overtime, and they actually ended up winning 126 to 117. Uh, then two nights later, game 21, they uh, broke the record by um, against Atlanta. They led um, 96-95 with 61 seconds left. Um, and then with the 24-second clock winding down, Goodrich ended up uh, – uh, he couldn't find a shot, so he ended up uh, passing a Chamberlain with a dunk for 39 seconds left, and they ended up winning 104-95. to So a, a close call in Atlanta uh, there. But those were the uh, closest calls of um, any um, – reading about the streak are there any other games that or anything any of the details in these games that i mentioned that uh, stand out to you I, I don't individually they don't i think it's just the sheer you know putting them all together that is still i think the most remarkable thing for me and you sure. the, the numbers you mentioned just uh, playing three in a row or over that two-month span how many games they played and then of course taking into account just how different travel was back then for these teams i think just the you know, certainly the physical aspect of it, but just the mental strength that it took to, to put together that streak, to me, is kind of what stands out above everything because, you know, certainly the 
social media wasn't what it was then and there wasn't the attention where every game seems like the end of the world like it does today on a nightly basis but once you know once they start approaching the bucks once they pass the bucks and you start thinking about how much longer can it go certainly the pressure is adding in for them to keep going out there every night and really decimating teams for the most part with, with the exception of some of those close games I think it's just the, the sheer combination of what those 33 games represents that stands out most for me. Yeah. Um, the biggest blowouts were Game 5, they won 143-103 to 103 over the Sixers. Uh, game 23, they won 129-99 to 99 over the Warriors. And Game 33, they won 134-98 to 98 over the uh, Hawks. So um, uh, more than 30-point blowouts. Uh, in those case, in those games, um, they had four, or uh, they in the thirteenth game in a row, um, they, uh, they they beat Detroit, uh, and that was probably the best individual stat line for here. Wilt had thirty one points, thirty one rebounds, and unofficially six blocks. So that's pretty good. Yeah, and that you know you talk about uh, Wilt and his his defense, and that was really. I've talked more about it in the finals. There's, there's a game against the Knicks where his defense really stood out. But I, I think that's another thing. You look at the numbers back then, and you know, just so much more scoring as far as the NBA back then. I mean, they were putting up 120 on a regular basis, 135, 150. Um, so certainly their offense that fast break was devastating. But having Wilt, you know, still back there, even at you know a more advanced age, certainly probably lost some athleticism, but. The way he was able to control the basket, um, that's if you're going to put together a long streak, you really need that defensive base. Yeah. Um, so Wes talked about uh, talking about the streak later and talking about uh, Baylor's retirement. He said that team that team changed overnight. It was one of those unique things that sometimes happens in sports. There was no rhyme or reason. With Jim McMillan, there's one less person who dribbled the ball, so that was left to Gail and myself. I th- I just think that people did what they were asked to do by Bill, and then we had incredible confidence. So, uh, not, it's interesting that there's not really like an the there's not really an uh, a you know there's not really a reason that is concrete for why it happened. I mean, obviously Baylor's retirement helped trigger it, but um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, it wasn't like they added like a superstar to the team, or you know, it wasn't like they had some sort of like big change. I mean, you, you think losing one of the great superstars in NBA history would hurt your team, and then suddenly you just you come off this you know in- incredible thing, and um, you know, the, the fact that it happened without much rhyme or reason, I think, is one of the kind of fa- fascinating things about it. Yeah, and uh, you know, like I said at the start of it, it was, was obviously this was a franchise that had a decade of success, but not a team that had won a huge amount of. You know, the Sixers held the single season victory record, so this was a team that would usually win you know fifty to fifty five, fifty six games a year, and so just it, this kind of was this you know bolt of lightning that happened thirty three times, and like I said, there's just no, I don't think there's one thing that really kicked it off and. You know, obviously, it's, I think it's just more coincidence than anything else that it just happens to start the right after Elgin retires. Um, you know, maybe that sparks him for a few games or whatever, but to continue it for two months um, is just it remains, I think, one of the more inexplicable stats in sports history. Yes, absolutely. One of my favorite parts of our Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s series is our awesome logo. It does a perfect job encapsulating exactly the tone and feel we wanted with the series. Well, today, I have some exciting news for you. 
The illustrator of that fantastic logo, Daniel J. Rowell, has made the logo, the cream and Dr. J head, as well as a bunch of other of his art available to purchase at DanielJRowell.com. Simply go to DanielJRowell.com, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-J-R-O-W-E-L-L.com, click on merch, and you can buy sweaters, coffee mugs, shirts, and more featuring Daniel's art. Now, just in case you're still on the fence, do know that Daniel can hold a piece of toast in his mouth for a solid eh, 45 seconds or so without dropping it. Plus, if you need a little bit more convincing, his aunt has described these shirts as fabulous. Again, to buy your tea, mug, or anything else that your little heart desires, go to Daniel J. Rowell, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-J-R-O-W-E-L-L.com and click on merch. So the end of the streak, they played a nationally televised game uh, against the Bucks. Uh, Keith Jackson and Bill Russell were doing a commentary for the game. It is available on YouTube for anyone who wants to watch it. Um, sold out at Milwaukee Arena, and the Bucks win 120-104. Uh, to 104. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has 39 points, 20 rebounds, 5 assists, um, and uh, Goodrich, West, and McMillan shot a combined 17 for 55. Um, and actually West had, uh, he had missed the three previous losses in, in the season. So it was his first loss of the season after 39 wins. So, uh, <laughs> and, um, and honestly, you know, really it was a, um, you, from kind of watching the game, the Bucks really kind of took what the Lakers were doing and, you know, just kind of you did, did a similar thing. I mean, they were, they were looking for a lot of fast breaks. They really just kind of ran the, um, the Lakers out of the arena, and, and honestly, I'm, you know, I'm sure by then the Lakers were fatigued, and you know they were due for a, a night. And as we talked about before, um, you know these Bucks were a historically great team. Um, the so so for SRS, which we talked about, is the uh, the basketball reference metric for um, you know for for team quality. Uh, the 71 Bucks uh, had the greatest SRS season in history, 11.9. Uh, the seven, so the 72 Lakers had 11.7, just below that were third all time. And then the 72 bucks who they, you know, face in this game and then end up facing in the finals had a 10.7 SRS, which is the, which is fourth all time. So, uh, for, for reference, the, uh, 2016 Warriors were sixth all time and the 2016 Spurs were seventh all time. So, um, so we're talking about, at least according to these metrics, some of the most dominant teams of all time. And the fact that the Lakers, uh, you know, again, adding to the impressiveness of what they accomplished this season, the fact that they beat, you know, the the fourth greatest regular season uh, team of all time in the Western Conference Finals to get, you know, to, to get through the championship is, you know, a probably an underrated element of what they accomplished, and they basically prevented the Bucks from having an almost sure dynasty. Yeah, and, and the end of the streak, uh, there's, uh, yeah, the newspaper stories afterwards. Um, Bucks coach uh, Larry Stello was talking about how he was happy that Atlanta hadn't ended the streak a game earlier, and it was a score that you noted where the Lakers absolutely blew Atlanta off the court, um, so that wasn't really in jeopardy. But the Bucks, I think, were very happy that the Lakers took that streak into that game because I, I don't think there's any question that they probably certainly still thought they were the team to beat, um, being the defending champions, going on to have – an amazing regular season themselves. So I think that game probably just more than anything solidified in their minds that, yeah, they were the team to beat. And there was a quote from Chamberlain afterwards. And it's, I'm ashamed we didn't play better said an embarrassed Chamberlain, um, you know, kind of 
tough. Wilt being tough on himself there. They, you know, you had just won 33 games in a row, um, but I think the Lakers were still. It, maybe the loss was inevitable in some ways. Going against a great team, you know, the mental fatigue, being on the road. But I certainly think the Lakers were disappointed, and the Bucks certainly felt that it was going to be a preview of what would happen if and when they did meet in the playoffs. Absolutely. And um, and the Lakers had lost to the Bucks in 71. It was four games to one series. Now, now Baylor and West didn't, were both injured in that series, so it was it, obviously the Lakers were shorthanded. Uh, this was the first uh, playoff battle between uh, Kareem and Will. They, they did not play um, – I don't think they played at all in Kareem's rookie season because Will missed most of that season with injury. So the first time they played was in 71, and then the 72 series would be their second and final playoff battle. Kareem definitely got the best of the first one. Uh, the second one um, – Definitely, uh, Wilt was able to um, make things harder for um, for Kareem. He shot uh, in the last four games, three of which were won by the the Lakers. He shot just a forty one percent. So even though he had, you know, he produced pretty well, he you know he scored pretty well in in, in a lot of the games. He did not um, he did not shoot efficiently, and um, and Wilt definitely made life tough for him. Um, I don't think we have exact rebounding totals, but from the accounts that I've given, I, I think generally Wilt was able to win the uh, rebounding battles. He was definitely the, the the bigger and stronger guy at the time, even though um, you know Kareem certainly challenged him. And um, so uh, after they beat the they beat the Bulls full straight to get here in the first round, uh, the Lakers actually lost the first game though. Uh, it was ninety three to seventy two um, in L A. Uh, and then um, Wes Goodrich, Wilt uh, McMillan, and uh, and John Q. Trapp shot a combined 14 for 75, uh, 19 points. It was the uh, uh, they set a team record for fewest playoff points. So um, interesting that they would uh, that they would lay such an egg in the uh, in the first game. Yeah, and that you know, I mentioned earlier, they had averaged 121. <laughs> And then, of course, 72, it's a number. I mean, it's just startling in any era. It's something you'd, you know, picture one of those mid-'90s playoff series, a right. team scoring that. But for a team that was that incredible in the season with scoring and playing at home, um, there was a story in Sports Illustrated midway through that series, and it talked about the Lakers blamed a lot of that performance on the lights that ABC was using in the forum, Um and Sharman himself sort of downplayed that, mentioning, of course, that the Bucks are, are playing in the same, you know, same facility, same right. lighting. Um, but I think it was something that sort of started the Lakers. And like I said, they were very fortunate. Game two, then they only win by one point. Really could have swung that series. And really that whole series, if you look at the first four games, the Lakers win by one point and three points, and the Bucks win by 21 points and 30 points. And Costello himself was talking after, you know, in the series is tied at two, that they are, they've proven they're kind of the superior team. You know, the Lakers are eking out these victories. The Bucks are blowing them off the court. Um, but then eventually the, the Lakers do win the final two games comfortably in game five. And like I said, Wilt, you know, wasn't putting up anywhere near the offensive numbers. And Kareem did still put up huge numbers. But there were moments, um, a, a big one in game three, 108, 105, that the Lakers won. And Kareem went without a field goal for the final 11 minutes of the game. And obviously, a lot of that because of Wilt. And he was still able to, it, it talked about how he was able to sort of take away some of Kareem's favorite moves. 
obviously, you know, the hook was still devastating, but Wilt did an amazing job really in, in helping control Kareem as much as anyone could at that stage of Kareem's career. The Skyhawk has been called unblockable, but it, it was blocked. I mean, it was obviously a difficult shot to block, but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, McMillan really saved the Lakers in game two. I mean, he had 42 points in that game, which is career high. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the Lakers won by one in that game. That really was a, um, you know, if that had not gone well, that series could have definitely changed um, uh a lot. One other thing is that Oscar Robertson had an abdominal strain, never really was a factor in the series. He only had two points in uh, in the final game, Game 6. Um, heading into Game 6, uh, Wilt actually called a team meeting and, you know, basically said, you know, I- I'm at a point in my career where, you know, where this guy is better than I am. I'm not the best guy on the floor anymore, but I have the better teammates and was, you know, kind of a way of like rallying his team and, you know, telling him that he had all the confidence in the world and that they could beat the Bucks and they were able to uh, to win game six of 104 to 100. Wilt had 20 points, West had 25 points, and Kareem had 37 points um, to lead all scores, but again, um, you know, the shooting percentage wasn't quite uh, there, even though he averaged 34 points and 18 rebounds in the series. He only shot 46% during the entire during the series, while his season mark was 57%. So, um, and basically, yeah, the 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 Bucks won uh, their two games by a combined uh, uh, 47 points, and they lost the other four games by a combined uh, 33 points, and, and three of those games by a combined eight points. So they actually outscored the. Uh, the Lakers in this series, but uh, they still lost it in six. So, so kind of a kind of a crazy series in a lot of ways. But um, you know, a, a testament for the Lakers for being able to uh, pull it out. And, and I think another thing that stands out from that series um, was Jerry West suffering through a horrific shooting slump that then carried over into the finals yeah. against the Knicks, and it kind of became. And he talked about it, and he was very frustrated by it that he was playing what he considered, and I, I think most people would consider the worst ball of his career. But his team is playing better than ever. His team ends up winning the title, which he, of course, was elated about, very grateful for, relieved maybe more than elated. Yeah. Um, but he was frustrated by the fact that he was going through this terrible shooting slump, and Sports Illustrated wrote about how at one of the practices he went to kick a scoreboard or a chair, a table, and he missed and would have done some damage. And a bench player said, you know, take it easy, Jerry, but... He was just so frustrated by how his shot was off, and he he talked about how his jump shot at that time was like a slice that a golfer was suffering through. Um, so it was really kind of remarkable that the Lakers were able to. Yeah, you, know, you don't have Wilt at his offensive peak, of course. You have Jerry West playing the worst basketball of his playoff career, but yet they are able to beat this dominant team. It, it's really a testament to you know when you talk about like, most impressive teams ever. I think that kind of goes on their resume, the fact that they were able to overcome those types of things, yet still win in six games. Yeah, and um, so so they go to the finals against the uh, Knicks, who had beaten them in a, a classic seven-game series in uh, 1970. And uh, and the Lakers, they, they do lose the first game. Um, it at home again, um, another kind of lay another egg in, in game ones, which is yeah. sort of interesting how they had to do that. Um, it reminds me a little bit of how the Heat were, sort of were known for that. Were sort of known for you know, kind of coming from behind or you know losing game ones like that. That's happened. I feel like in LeBron in several of his uh, series um, where you know for whatever reason they have to kind of get behind or have to sort of like find that drive within themselves before they can actually you know. Um, 
uh, you know, overcome the odds and, and, and pull it out. Obviously, it works out for um, a lot of times, but and it worked out for the Lakers this year. But, uh, I mean, really, uh, Jerry Lucas and Bill Bradley had incredibly hot shooting. Um, uh, Willis Street was out during the series, so Lucas was able to, you know, kind of fill his up. And, you know, Lucas was more of an outside shooter, so he would have been somebody who, you know, Will didn't like to go out into the perimeter and deal with, um, you know, the outside shootings. I mean, the one thing that the Knicks were very successful on is they, they basically had – they could shoot from basically any position, so they had a lot of – they were able to create a lot of spacing. That was, that was really part of their philosophy at the time was to – um, you know, especially when they're playing the Lakers, was to you know, try to draw the big man out when, you know, Will did not like to do that. Obviously, he you know preferred to play inside, as most big men did during the time. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, you talk about modern game with, you know, obviously they didn't have a three-pointer then, but there were stories back then during that series where it talked about how the Knicks, you know, were battling while, while shooting jump shots and how that was, you know, the best way they could play, but how over a five, well, eventual five-game series, um, you know, potential seven game series where that at that time, especially where you're not being rewarded for shooting from further out, that was just a very difficult way to overcome a team that did have someone like Wilt inside who not averaging 50 points per game, but is still very effective down there. Um, so it was kind of this, this contrast and the Knicks, I think were just sort of outmanned and, and outarmed that series, but still gave uh, you know, a very good performance and it, key game in game four that goes overtime in new york lakers were leading two games to one but if the knicks win that it's two two and you have to think a lot of those bad memories for the lakers would have sparked up again um but instead the lakers win in overtime and one of the big things about that game is again wilt who would go on to be finals mvp and really kind of you know certainly earned it with the way you know west was struggling um but wilt picks up a fifth foul late in regulation he has famously never fouled out in his career with a fact that he's very aware of and was very proud of. But people would sort of criticize him for, you know, believing that maybe he would, you know, play off a little bit to not foul out. But then at overtime, he a key possession after the Lakers take a lead, he blocks Jerry Lucas. The Knicks regain possession, he gets another block. There's a 24-second violation. The Lakers go down and, and take a four-point lead and, and go on to win. And just kind of really solidified how Wilt was still able to dominate even if he wasn't putting up the huge numbers from earlier in his career. Yeah, and in that game, early in that game, he sprained his wrist, um, but he was still was able to play yeah. off, off 53 minutes. He had 24 rebounds um, and um, it, it really played a great game. You know, by the end, he actually has, like, he has, like, little um, splints around his fingers. Um, you know, like, on, on both hands, he has, like, these bandages on both hands. You know, he's he's battling through and um you know, d- despite that is is managing to uh, do and it's kind of crazy the in that game the um the lakers only use seven players um uh, you know they uh so <laughs> you know the fact that they you know play an overtime game 53 minutes uh will plays the entire time and they only use uh you know seven players uh during that time, and uh, the the Lakers used uh, eight players. Um, of course, they Earl Monroe was hurt during that series. Um, DeBusher was in and out with a lot of injuries. He he played uh, forty eight minutes in Game Four and, and, and played pretty well. That but uh, so obviously both teams were dealing with um, were either shorthanded by choice or by um, you know either just shorthanded because they didn't quite have the depth or shorthanded because they were dealing with injuries, but. Um, game five, uh, it was close at halftime. The Lakers pulled away in the second half. Uh, 
Wilt had uh, 24 points and 29 rebounds, also had eight assists and unofficially had eight block shots. Um, while Frazier had a good game uh, for the um, Knicks with 27.7 rebounds and 10 assists, but the uh, Lakers won their first championship 114 to 100. Uh, it was in Los Angeles. It was their their eighth try at a championship in Los Angeles. They finally were able to uh, to pull it off. Um, that was the that was the eighth try for yeah. for for West, yes, because he was in for all of them in Los Angeles. That's right. So, and um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Chamberlain for the series averaged nineteen point four points, twenty three point two rebounds. He was the MVP. Um, and as you mentioned with with West, he was frustrated that he uh, played terrible basketball. Although he he was a good playmaker, you know he had thirteen assists in one game. Yeah. He, he was doing other things even though a shot was off. But you know he said. Um, uh, it didn't seem like justice for him because he contributed so much in the years when he lost and then when he won, he he was, quote, just another piece of the machinery. Um, uh, it was particularly frustrating because I was playing so poorly that the team overcame me. Um, and then, of course, they would they, they would battle in uh, 1973. Again, these two teams in the finals, it would go better for the Knicks with Willis Reed uh, there and, uh, and some changes in the team. But that will have to be discussed in a future basketball mystery of the 1970s. So, um, Sean, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to uh, to, to discuss about this uh, team? No, I just, you know, one, briefly back to kind of the two main guys, Wilt and West. And sure. A- after the title, Sports Illustrated, I just looking at it now again, the line, Lakers have won, and talking about Wilt, and it said, in the end, he shut up, perhaps forever, those critics who for years claimed that he was a quitter, that he could not win important games. And unfortunately for Wilt... You know, forty plus years later, he he didn't shut up those critics in many ways because there's still, unfortunately, a lot of people who did who do lay those claims on him. And if that you know that series you know didn't shut him up, nothing he would have done it could have done that. But it really was kind of a, a nice cap for Wilt, who had you know unlike West had won a previous title, um, but to show his critics at the time and if people today who might criticize him if they do look back at that series especially and see just everything that he could do um, might change some people's opinion and then Wes just how it you know reading the stories after they win and like I said a little bit ago it, it was I don't know if it was so much celebration or elation for him just this weight off his shoulders finally um, but being counteracted by the fact that he didn't play very well but there was a quote um, and I actually used it in my book but after they won, he told reporters, the feelings I have now are private ones. I'm at a loss for any more words. I'm going to go back home and lock the door. And just that mentality that I think is so foreign to think of today, but it really kind of sums up just he was this driven figure kind of tormented for so long by these demons of what the Lakers had suffered through. So the 72 season really, in many ways, it was a celebration of you know what basketball could be and their kind of I think even today you can hold them up as a perfect example of when a great team comes together and what they can accomplish. But in many ways it was, you know, still sort of this bittersweet culmination, especially for West. Yeah. And to, um, 
Yeah, because he, because their success is also a reminder of their failures a bit. Um, yeah, be, exactly. Be, because you, you see, oh, okay, this is what you could have done, you know, when everything goes together. Why didn't you do it more? I mean, which is, you know, obviously silly and unfair, but, um, yeah. but, but, you know, there, there, there's that. And, and, you know, Wes, as you mentioned, was just, was, was incredibly hard on himself. I mean, if, if you ever read his, um, his autobiography, you know, it is very much a, um, uh, you know a um portrayal of of him and his uh, his torments and his eccentricities and uh his personality and it's uh, you know he's definitely a guy who you are you know rooting for to have peace and have uh you know confidence and have um you know even though he's had a lot of great success in his life he's still um you know you you're hopeful he can he has you know he he can find happiness or at least he finds happiness in in a lot of things in his life but um so speaking of your book, do you want to tell uh, listeners who haven't heard your other episodes about uh, a little bit about your book? Of course I will. Um, yeah, Rise and Fire, you mentioned it's about the history of the jump shot. And I, you know, I was just thinking last week uh, after the Cavs won, that this was kind of the year of the jump shot with Steph and Clay Thompson going crazy, Villanova winning the national title with uh, you know the three-pointer at the buzzer. Kyrie winning the title for the Cavs with his amazing shot. Um, so it's kind of the perfect time, I think, if people want to read about where the jump shot came from, where it started, and how it's really changed basketball from the time it came to the game in the 30s through the 50s, through these great guys of the 60s with West, Oscar, Hal Greer, and then up to the modern game with the three-pointer. Um, I hope people check it out. Cool. And uh, and where can uh, where can people find you on the Internet if they want, if they want to uh, follow you on Twitter or know more about you? Um, Twitter is at Sean Fury, S-H-A-W-N-F-U-R-Y, and SeanFury.com has uh, a lot more information about the book as well. Cool. All right, Sean. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Really appreciate it. And uh, for everyone, of course, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, you can find our uh, podcast at HarborParoxysm.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. And we appreciate uh, any feedback you want to give us. Uh, hopefully, you're enjoying these uh, basketball mysteries of the '70s. It's our plan for our off-season series to uh, continue looking at the. Uh, the most interesting uh, teams and players and uh, subjects of the uh, decade and uh, dig deeper into them uh, and uh, try to unravel what's a very uh, complicated and complex decade. Uh, Give us an iTunes rating if you would, uh, a favorable one. We'd like those. Um, We're also on Stitcher. You can uh, find us there and and give us a review there. And uh, I think that's about it. So until next time, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Next time on Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Yeah, it's a it's a pattern that keeps on going. And, I mean, it's sort of like anything with history. You know, you're always, like, doomed to repeat it if you don't, like, want to actually pay attention. I guess the Knicks have uh, never chosen to pay attention to what they've done in the past. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.